Galatians this morning as we have been. It's good to be with you. My name's Rick. I'm one of the pastors here. There are some new faces out here this morning, isn't there? Well, welcome to UPC. Hey, um, let me kind of uh, ease us into where we're at this morning. The argument of the Bible is that you and I were made for freedom. Now, when I say that, what I don't mean is the kind of freedom that we normally associate with the word freedom. When I say freedom, most of us think I'm free to do whatever I want and be driven by whatever comes out of my uh, desires for that day. Um, instead, the Bible says that true freedom is to, is to live as God, our creator, intended us to live. That makes sense, right? Because to, to actually function as your creator made you to function seems like that's what you're made for, right? Car's not free to run sugar. Wasn't made for that. Uh, that's how the Bible understands our freedom. And at the same time, the Bible also argues that though our desire, or through our desire to live as we intend, we've come to a bondage, come into like a slavery. Interestingly enough, it's a slavery to ourselves. It's like a bondage to us. We can't get apart from that, can't get outside of that. And because of that, we have come into a bondage also to a destiny that we weren't created for, eternal separation from God. And so the question that really kind of the whole Bible engages with, but this book in particular engages in, is, is how, how to get back to freedom, how to get back to what we were made for. Is it through um, following the right path? You know, getting, getting the, the right things straight, the getting our direction set and doing the things that keep us on the path? Is it, is it uh, you know, uh, doing the right rituals? Is it making sure that, you know, when we come to church, we sing the right things and we give the right amount and, and we, you know, uh, kneel when we're supposed to kneel and, and do that? Or, or is there something else? Is it through our vigorous efforts to make things right? Or is it through the efforts of another? text this morning features one of these kind of central individuals to God's plan. God's plan to make things right, and it kind of brings out the fact that he is the one who has power to fulfill that promise. So if you'd stand in honor of God's word, that is our habit here. I'm going to be reading Galatians 3 verses 6 through 9, short passage see how short it really is. All right, uh, chapter 3, verses 6 to 9. This is God's word. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed, along with Abraham, the man of faith. This is God's word given for our flourishing. Would you pray with me? Jesus, if we're going to get anything out of this time, we need you to be the one who is speaking. And it's a strange thing to ask that, consider I'm getting ready to speak. But, Lord, we know that um, there's no power in any human's words. I can talk about this passage all day long, but I can't change hearts can't change my own, better yet, my friends here. 
And so we need you. Spirit, would you come and just kind of let everything that Jesus has done come to the fore and open our mind to be able to understand it and our, our, our hearts to receive it so that we might leave this place changed. We ask that you do this in Christ's name. Amen. Have a seat. So I'm a, I'm a guy, shocker, uh, I'm a guy and like most guys, I have an aversion to instructions. Um, guys, you know what I mean. And if you think you don't, the ladies will correct you, okay? Uh, because it drives them nuts. And this is a rather terrible time to have that said aversion since nearly every furniture item you purchase comes with some assembly required. And I was reminded of this uh, you know, a while back, a year, maybe two ago. I was building a desk for one of my daughters, and I was killing it. I was plowing through it. I was getting this thing done. It was awesome, and I came to the end, and I realized I had put something on backwards. And now there was nothing to do but take it all apart and start over. Right? Yeah. Ouch. Thank you. Yeah, it was awful. Because I had gotten something wrong in step two, I had to take it all apart and start over again. The thing is, what I had made up until that point looked an awful lot like what was in the picture. It did. It looked, as far as I was concerned, exactly like what was in the picture. But there was a key difference. I messed it all up. And that's what this passage is about. This passage is kind of like a clapback at the people that have been arguing uh, with the Galatians about Paul, that he kind of messed this thing up. Because what he's about to say is not only did I not mess it up, but in fact, you guys are the ones who haven't understood what the plan was supposed to be at the beginning. He's going to say, not only am I right, but these folks who hold Abraham so dear have, messed, have missed exactly what it is to be part of the family of Abraham. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. There's an outline in your bulletin, if you, or in your worship guide, sorry, Megan, if, if uh, that's helpful to you. I'm trying. I'm really trying. <laughs> Let's start out with the children of Abraham, okay? Look down at verse 6. So verse 6, you're like, wait a minute, Rick, you, we read verse 6 last week. You're right. Verse 6 is kind of a transition verse between these two passages. It's, it's a transition verse between two arguments, okay? Uh, and, and so look, at, look there real quick. He says again, he says, Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him or credited to him, depending on your translation, as righteousness. Now, if you're not familiar at all with the Bible, you're probably thinking, so what? Right? One, what's the big deal about this Abraham guy? Two, what, what is all this churchy language? I mean, who cares about this, right? Well, there's some reasons why this is important. First is because of the challenge that Paul is answering, right? Paul, this early Christian leader, planted all these churches in southern Turkey, and uh, he's answering a challenge about his understanding. Not just, he, he's answering the challenge about who he is and how he came to be who he was and how he got the authority to do what he, what he was doing. Now, in fact, he's answering the challenge of, do I know what I'm talking about? And in particular, this thing that I've been talking to these people about, this gospel, this good news, this central message of the Christian faith, does it actually make sense in the grand story of the Bible? 
And that makes sense, right? Because if you wanted to be part of the Jewish Messiah, there's a question. Do I have to be Jewish? Do I have to be Jewish to be a descendant of Abraham? You with me? You see how this works? It's an honest question. So that's the first reason why this is important. The second reason is where this guy Abraham fits in this whole story, the story of God's promise to, to make the world right. See, in Genesis 1 and 2, everything's going great. God's making things. Everything's good. He's created humanity. They're all good. And then in Genesis 3, we break stuff, and we break everything. We break us. We break the world. We turn away from God. We, we uh, betray him, and in breaking our relationship with him, we, we ruin all the relationships. They all come unhinged. Our relationship with ourselves has come unhinged. Our relationship with creation is unhinged. Everything's just kind of broken. But God... Uh, promises to make it all better right he promises to make things better we turned away from him the bible calls that sin and i know when i when i say sin most of us think of like rule breaking there's a bit of that in it but sin biblically is less about breaking a certain rule and more about breaking a relationship it's less about breaking a rule more about breaking a heart and so that's what we've done. We turn from God. It brings us under guilt. It fundamentally changes us as humans. But then God promises right there in Genesis 3 to fix what we broke, to reconcile us to himself. And a few chapters later, we are introduced to this guy by the name of Abram, who would later become Abraham. And it's this guy through whom God says, I'm going to fix things. See, God chose uh, good old Abe when Abe was like, he, he didn't even know who God was. He's worshiping false gods. He's not a believer in God. And yet God said, you're coming with me, and it's going to be through your family that I'm going to deal with sin and make things right. And when he made that promise, the Bible calls that a covenant. And a covenant is a kind of a, a uniquely churchy word. And when I say uniquely, I mean unique to like our kind of church, Reformed church. We use that word a lot. Presbyterian church. We use that word a lot. The, the basic way to understand the covenant is that it's a promise-bound relationship, okay? Think of it in its most basic terms, the way we would think ideally of a marriage, right? Husband and wife making promises to each other that aren't contingent on what the other is doing, but unilateral, right? Coven it's a promise-bound relationship. So God makes this relationship, this promise-bound relationship with Abram and says, I'm going to do this through your family, which by the way, you don't have yet. And I'm going to deal with sin. I'm going to make things right. And, and Abraham, who's in his 90s with no kids, believes God, trusts God to be true to his promise. So not only is he important to those who have a Jewish background, because literally he's, he's seen as the progenitor, like the father of their whole um, uh, clan, you know, family, but he is central to God's plan to make things right. right. And so that brings us now to how Paul uses Abraham in these two verses. Paul's just argued in the, in the passage before this, you can't earn your way to God. It can't be done. In fact, not only can you not earn your way to God, you don't suddenly, after you've been made right with him, make yourself better on your own. That has to be done by him too. Can't make things up to God by trying hard. We can't do it by trying to be sincere. 
And, and that makes sense, right? Because if our problem is fundamentally desiring to be and living out of an independence from God, then trying to do it in our own, on our own just makes things worse. And Paul has argued that we need rescue, not reform. And so his point now is to show that that's not only the case now. That's always been the case. And he does this by quoting from a, another verse in the Bible, Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. Okay, you can go back and look that up later. He says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, two things about this. First, believing. Abraham believed God. Now, notice what he didn't say. He didn't say Abraham believed in God. You can believe in God and not believe God. Now, you can't believe God and not believe in God. That's, that's impossible. But it is very simple to believe in God without believing God. Because believing God has to do with trusting him. To believe that God exists does not necessarily mean that you have faith in him. It doesn't necessarily mean that you've placed your weight, your life, your hopes, your value, everything in his lap and said, it's all on you, it's not on me, I can't do it, it's yours. Believing in God is simply a proposition. Believing God is something different. What Abraham believed in Genesis 15 was a promise. He believed the promise that God was going to make the world right through his children, even though he didn't have any. God's not asking Abraham to get to work. He's not asking him to get his, the rules right. Abraham wasn't given the law. He didn't, give, he, he didn't somehow say, now, Abraham, here's what I need you to do. I need you to set up an altar. Here's how I need you to sacrifice the bulls right. And here's the ways that you need to keep your nose clean. He said, I'm going to do this. And Abraham trusts him. He believes it. He could easily have believed in God and yet think, yeah, right, okay, no thanks. I mean, I could get it. You're God. You're speaking to me, and it's either that or I'm crazy, so I'm going to go with your God, but I mean, I'll just do this on my own or go about my life. And many of us do that, don't we? And listen, I don't care if you've been going to church your whole life, whether your first time in here. It's very easy for us to go through the motions, especially when we're part of a community like this, where it's, isn't that what we're supposed to do? You believe in God good. I mean, it's better than nothing, I guess. But that's very different than believing God. See, instead, Abraham, Abraham leans not on his abilities or understanding, but on God who promised to work outside of him to rescue. And the second thing is what that belief results in. It says he was credited or it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, righteousness is a really churchy word, Ultimately, it means faithfulness or being true. And so to be righteous in a promise-bound relationship, in a covenant, means to be true to it, to be faithful to it, to be faithful. It's a status that you are given. It's, I am faithful to it. Now, if you read the story of Abraham, and you go into Genesis 12, and you start reading from Genesis 12 on, what you're going to see said, Abraham is not very faithful, right? Like, 
Sure, he has his moments, but if you're looking for a spiritual giant or a hero to act like, Abraham is probably not the guy, right? Let me give you a highlight. There's this powerful king. This powerful king thinks his wife Sarah is a hottie. And because Abraham is so scared that that king is going to kill him and take his wife, what he says is, what I need you to do, Sarah, here's what I need you to do. I need you to pretend to be my sister. In other words, he puts her in a very vulnerable place. How vulnerable? Well, she ends up in the king's bedroom. But at least Abram wasn't dead. Right? I mean, that sounds like, this is a faithful guy. No, don't take me. Take my wife. Like, there's a good, whew, go be like Abraham. Please don't. Okay? Abraham, like us, is deeply flawed in his need of rescue. And that's where this word credit comes in or counted. To credit something is to give you a status that was not there before. Right? It is not to acknowledge something that was already there. If you were to credit my bank account with $10,000, you are not acknowledging that there was already that much money in my bank account. I'm not going to tell you how much is in there. What it means is to to give that status to me, okay? Abraham, Abraham was not righteous and God acknowledged it. Abraham was not awesome and God said, ah, look how awesome he is. Nor was the fact that he believed God somehow awesome to God. Like, okay, and therefore that belief is faithfulness. That's not what it is. God gave him the status of faithful. In other words, it was something that was not his that God gave to him when he trusted him. You with me? So important. You cannot get this wrong. We have to understand this is the way God works because God is not acknowledging Abraham's awesomeness, nor is God lowering the bar for Abraham and going, I know you can't get all this stuff right. You put your wife in harm's way. No big deal. Can you just believe me and I'll just take what I can get? It's not what he's saying. It is a status that was not there before that God is counting to him And he's crediting to him. Why? Because he believed him. Okay, so that's Abram. But Paul extends that in verse 8. He says that those who do the same are sons of Abraham. Now this is huge. Paul is saying that if you want to be faithful before God, the key is not being religious, it's not being sincere, or even trying to be good, or even certain cultural markers that does it, that it is faith. You want to claim Abraham Abraham as your father? Have his faith. Believe God that God is going to fix what we broke. You want to claim that Abraham is your father. It's not through lineage, but faith that such a thing is reckoned, Paul says. You want to be part of the promise to Abraham, part of God's promise to make the world right, part of all of this stuff. It's through faith, not rule keeping. And in doing so, you can be credited just like he was. Okay, well, that sounds good. But how? Right? How? How do we, how does that work? Paul gets into that in verse 8. Look there, he says, The scriptures, seeing ahead of time, or foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, And you shall all the nations be blessed. Okay, stop there. To really get this, we need to understand what's being argued in in Paul's context. 
If you were a first century Jewish person, you believe most of what we've been saying so far, okay? You believe that God made things good. You believe that we sinned and became broken. You know that God chose Abraham to fix things through his family, and he gave that family certain markers that marked them out, gave them the law, gave them uh, dietary restrictions, eat this and not this. He gave them, in, in their world, the sexual ethic was a huge difference between God's people and everybody else. He gave them, uh, you know, the, a covenant sign, circumcision. He gave them this idea of the Sabbath. And if you wanted to be with God's rescue plan, if you're a first century Jewish person, then you have to be part of the family. And to be part of the family meant taking up these markers. You with me? How do you get into the family? I mean, we do this too, right? I mean, if you want to be a Christian, you can't drink or chew or go with girls that do. Come on, help me out. All right, like those are the things that we think. Like we go, here are the markers that make us Christians. It's faith. Yeah, yeah, faith. And then it's like Sunday school attendance and, and worship attendance and giving a certain amount and all these things. But Paul came preaching something different. He came preaching that gaining a part in God's rescue plan is not in taking certain markers on yourself. It's about putting your trust in God's rescuer. That's how you get into the rescue plan. And now, what's crazy, the boldness of his argument is not simply that that's what he's saying. It's that's what's always been. He's going, it's, it's like, it's not just that this is, I'm saying this now. It's like, guys, this is what it's been forever. And I can almost imagine him going, do you remember Rahab? Do you remember Ruth? Do you remember all these Gentiles that, oh, by the way, were part of King David's heritage? Do you remember how they got in? believed God. They believed God. And they became part of the rescue plan. What's awesome is that Paul calls this the gospel. The same thing that he calls his message. His point is this. This is the way God has intended to do it. Faith has always been the way that God has worked out his rescue. And so that may be hard to see. Let me break down this verse. So when he says the scriptures, we need to understand that for Paul, the scriptures were the old, what we call the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, right? And so when he's, telling, when he's talking about scriptures, he's talking about the, the Old Testament is God's inspired and inerrant word. Those are, those are uh, Christians speak for the fact that it ultimately comes from God and that God has put it together without, without errors in it, okay? And that word justify, when he says that... Um, in the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles. Justify is, is another technical term that means to be made right. It's the, it's in, the, in the original, it's the same kind of root word that we get the word righteous from. You could say righteousify, but it doesn't sound as good, okay? So we say justify. Um, it, and so it means to be made right before God. And that, that word gospel, again, means it's God in the, in the way that the Christians have worked it out in the early church was it was God's good news that he had come in Jesus to rescue us through the person and work of Christ. So in other words, the gospel is not good advice. It's a declaration. It's news of something that happened 
not a path for you to walk on. It's news. And so when Paul quotes from Genesis 12 there, right, in you shall all the nations be blessed, he is claiming that that verse laid out a plan to rescue not just those who were physically descended from Abraham, but the entire world. And that it is that is what has come to fruition. The point of Abraham, Paul is saying, was never just for Abraham's family. It was through his family that the world would be blessed. And now that word blessed is interesting. When we take blessed, that is the way Christians talk about being lucky, right? Let's be honest. When we say blessed, we fill in blessed for lucky. I'm so blessed. Oftentimes just means I'm so fortunate, right? Blessed in the scriptures, when, when, when Jesus stands up and he gives his, what we call the Beatitudes, right? Blessed are the, blessed are the poor in spirit, right? Blessed means it, it harkens back to that world where all of our relationships are lined up. To be blessed is not to be fortunate. It's to be living in the life that God has intended. It's to be reconciled to him and everything else. That's blessing. And so when, when, when he says that all of the world will be blessed, he's saying that the, that the point of Abraham, the point of his family was never to be just about them. It was to be them for the world. And that it is in, through, in and through Jesus that that blessing, that, that in and for the worldness has gone out and now has come to fruition. That was God's plan all along. It's not through working hard. It's not through being good, being authentic, getting your life together, but through faith, through believing God's promise. And it wasn't just for those who can trace their family tree through to Abraham, it was always meant to be for the world, okay? Now, that leads us to the source. Okay, look again at those last two verses, verses eight and nine. God's promise is that the nations, the nations are gonna be blessed through Abraham and later that those of faith will be blessed with Abraham, the man of faith, okay? Like I just said, in the Bible, to be blessed is to be restored to the life that we were intended to live to flourish. But the scriptures are clear that we can't because we were cut off from God by our sin. The promise, as we're reading it through Abraham and his family, is that they are going to be God's rescue plan. The problem, if you've read the Bible at all, is that you know that Abraham's family is just as messed up as the, rescue, as the rest of us. And drowning people can't save drowning people. Right? Anyone had lifeguard training? You know how this works. A drowning person, what they do is they ain't trying to keep you up. They're trying to pull you down because they're trying to get up. Like this is what drowning people do. If, if Abraham's family is meant to be the rescue plan, but they're in need of rescue, then something has to be done. And so God in Jesus became part of Abraham's family to rescue the world. All that Abraham's family showed us is that having the right law having the right rituals, having the right worship, having all the revelation of God still can't rescue you. You can have all the rules you want. You can have all the right worship you want. And at the end of the day, 
It's not going to work because the problem isn't that you don't have those things. The problem is in here. We need a rescuer, and so did they. So like I said, someone was born into Abraham's family who didn't. Paul's argument has been and will be that this promise to Abraham was fulfilled in Jesus. He came in the flesh without sin to live the life we couldn't, to die as we wouldn't. He lived a faithfulness that you and I could never achieve. Do you believe that? Especially if you've been a Christian a long time. Do you you really believe that? That Jesus, there's no amount of goodness that you can do. That somehow, it's, it's like holding a candle up to the sun. Good for you. Okay? You got, this little light of mine. Don't let Satan woof it out. But it's not the same. His righteousness so exceeds anything we could do. His faithfulness so exceeds anything we could do. That he loved God with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength. And his neighbor of himself every second of every minute of every day of his life. I can't even imagine what that's like. But he died before men and before God as a rebel. He bore the penalty for our sin and then he rose from the dead and offers the benefits of his work to all who would come to him by faith. Not by working hard, but by trusting in his hard work. See, the faith of Abraham was in God's promise to rescue. Ours, because of where we, where we sit in history, is to look back and see what he has already fulfilled in Jesus. He is the source of blessing. He is the only one who can reconcile us to God. To reject Jesus is to reject God's rescuer. God's answer to our problem. In fact, the only possible answer. Okay? Now, let me make two applications this morning. One's a little more theological, uh, and one's a little more practical. Okay? First, the theological one. We're going to look at the family tree. There's a lot of confusion today in the American church over where we fit in God's rescue plan. Right? Are we like plan B? Are we a parenthesis? Uh, you know, uh, how does this work? Well, in Christian theology, we call this the history of redemption. And this confusion over this is deep. I mean, some of this confusion has shaped foreign policy in this country. But this text is clear. God's plan was always for a worldwide family for Abraham. God did not shift midstream. It's not as if Jesus rode into Jerusalem and the Jews were like, yay, Jesus, and then later said crucify, and God's like, well, that didn't work, and he came up with the church. Like, that's not the way this happened, okay? The true family of Abraham has always been marked by faith. That is what Jesus himself meant when he said that the true children of Abraham are of the faith of Abraham. Do you realize Jesus was talking to Jewish leaders? And, he, and he's in an argument, in fact. He's in an argument with the Pharisees. It's a great argument. And if, of course, we never read it as if Jesus is having an argument. He's always very stoic. Well, you are sons of your father, the devil. You know, like, I don't think that's what he said. I think he said... Your sons are your father, the devil. Like, I think he was going at him. And what he said was, if you were children of Abraham, you would rejoice right now because Abraham saw my day and he rejoiced. He's talking to Pharisees. 
He's talking to people who could name their lineage all the way back to Abraham. And Jesus is saying, you're not his kids. Because if you were, you would trust me. It's what Paul was saying in Romans 9 when he said, not everyone is of Israel who is, or not everyone is Israel who is of Israel. He's saying, just because you're born into a family tree does not make you this. This has always been of faith. Abraham's family is organized around the promise and faith in it. And that promise is now fulfilled in Jesus. Whatever we may think of a particular nation state in the Middle East, the Israel of God is organized around Jesus and not a national boundary. And it always has been. Just as it was once organized around the promise of the Messiah, now after he's come and done his work, now it is organized around him. Like Paul says here, sonship or Childrenship of Abraham is by faith. It's not by descent. It's not by some physical marker. So that's the theological side. Now let's get to the practical. Or at least less theoretical. Let's be honest. And I don't care if you're a Christian or not in this place. I know that everything in us at the end of the day wants to be able to get to, if there is a judgment of God in the, in the first place, wants to be able to get there and say, look at what I've done. Look at my awesomeness. Isn't it great? That's what we want, right? Many of us, like, and, and many of us, and I'm one of them, get really weird if someone offers us a gift, right? How many of you out there are like those that when someone gives you a gift, you're like, oh, um, look, I got you this, you know, or, or come up with some excuse. Oh, we were giving presents. I didn't know. Right? Because we feel weird. I shouldn't be given a gift. No one should give me freely anything. What does that mean? What do they want from me? Right? We don't want to get gifts. But Christianity tells us that that is the only way to be right before God. It's not to achieve, it's just to receive. And it is because of this notion of promise. See, from the beginning, God made a covenant. He made this promise-bound relationship with us. We didn't deserve that. Like, Adam and Eve had just jacked up the world. They didn't deserve for God to say, you know what, I love you and I'm going to fix this. He had done nothing but love them every breath of their lives. And let's be honest, we're not entirely certain how long it had been up to that point. There's a big blank. We don't know. But even if it were just three days, the entire breath of their lives, he had provided for them and perfectly loved them and walked with them. And they betrayed him, believed a snake instead of the God of the universe. Weird. And, and yet he said, you know what, guys, I love you. I'm going to fix this. I'm going to take care of this. Abraham had no reason to think that he could ever have children, but God said, I'm going to fix this and through your, I'm going to do it through kids. So Abraham trusted him, returned to dependence on him, and God credited him with righteousness. Let me say it again. Abraham was not a faithful man. Did he have flashes? Yes. The whole taking Isaac up to the top of the mountain, flash. That was big. That was a really big deal. But God's standard is not a good day. It's perfection. It's perfection. 
The bar doesn't get lowered because you're a nice guy or girl. I know you are. But it doesn't get lowered. But, and here's the thing, it doesn't have to be. Abraham's status was credited to him because God was not asking him to do it. He never asked him to do it. He was credited with the righteousness of another. And that is still true today. God's standard hasn't changed. Listen. Salvation, this is going to sound really weird. Salvation is by works. It is. Salvation is by works. It is by obedience. It's just not by yours. It's not through your works, and it's not through your obedience. It's through Jesus' works, Jesus' obedience. It is by having a perfect record. Salvation is by having a perfect record reconciled to God saying, I love him with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength, and I love my neighbors as myself. And there is no excuse for your mess-ups. And by the way, guys, if any of you took away that I was making an excuse for your mess-ups last week, that's crazy. That is not what I meant. Okay, there is no excuse for you to go seek after false intimacy and pornography or false adequacy in your online environment. That is, that is dreadfully mistaken. What I was saying was that, in fact, the problem is, is that these things happen and we're too scared to move into the real thing so we go with the fake. Okay? The point that I'm trying to make right now is that salvation is by works but not yours. God is not asking you to do it. He's not asking you to accomplish it. Some of us are like, his standard is so high, why does he ask this of me? He's not. Others of us are like, his standard is so high, I could never reach it. I know. He's not asking you to. And that means that it doesn't matter if you're here this morning and your life has looked really awesome or you're really embarrassed to mention what you did last night. You're really hoping no one asks you how your weekend was. When we trust in Jesus, his work, his obedience is credited to us. Both his obedience in his life credited us as if we kept the law, as if we lived in perfect dependence on him, and his obedience in death as if we actually died for our sin, that it was actually already done. God has always had one way of salvation. In theology, in Christian theology, we call this the covenant of grace. He has always had one way that went from Genesis 3.15 and extends all the way to Revelation 22. It's the, it, it is the act in which God, the offended God would promise life to the offending sinner if only they would repent of their independence and trust in him to rescue him. The benefit of where we stand is that we are looking back on a promise fulfilled. We look back to the cross and see that's how he was going to do it. Awesome. We've seen the, the fulfillment of his promise in the glorious life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. What Abraham had in promise form, we have in full color. A Savior who loves us, who dies for us, and who brings us into his family. Would you pray with me?
Lord, help us today just to receive gifts. It's, it's no uh, coincidence to you, at least, that today is the day that we come to receive communion. We receive the gift of your body broken, your blood poured out. We receive a gift of feasting with you in the heavenlies and of the Spirit confirming the gospel to us in that act. Help us to be receivers. We believe, Lord, but help, us, help our unbelief. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. And so, as we do come...